0: Welcome to GRASP Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. My name is Michael Sanborn, and I'm a PhD student in computer science at Vanderbilt University. This is a conversation with Douglas Fisher, an associate professor of computer science and associate professor of computer engineering at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Fisher previously obtained his PhD from the University of California, Irvine, and his research focus includes artificial intelligence, machine learning, and computing and the environment. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Okay, could you just start by talking about how you first got into computer science, first experience with programming, maybe first interaction with a computer. What do you remember from from that and uh kind of like how how this journey started basically.
1: Yeah, well that was a while ago. Uh so my father was in computer uh science from early on. He was in the aeronautics industry and um um you know was a, one of the original I think he was probably one of the original ACM members and oh wow. He had this whole collection uh of um Magazines and conference proceedings from those days, but he wasn't an academic. And um, I took my first programming class um, it was the summer between middle school and high school, um, I'm sure at the encouragement of my father. But he would drop me off at the junior college on the way to uh, work, and um, I would go in. This was in Fortran programming, so oh that boy. was my first class. I just remember snippets from it. I remember being in lecture. I remember writing out the Fortran program. They had these big uh, sheets that were sort of structured sheets in which you'd write the commands, Mm -hmm. uh, much like we uh, do on forms uh, today, online forms. And, um, you know, then punch them in and keep keep punch and, and put the cards through and get back the results. So, you know, this was probably 1971, and um, summer of 71, and um, I remember liking it, liking programming, but I didn't really, you know, stay with it until um, I got into uh, college. Okay. So,
0: what was the, I guess, was there a kind of buzz or excitement around computing at the time, or did you have maybe groups or uh, friends from school, or was it mostly at the encouragement of your father that you kind of got initially involved?
1: Well, this class was almost certainly at the encouragement of my father. I don't remember a lot of stuff, and that's one of, you know, exact, but I do remember him dropping me off, and um, I do remember the class. No, there was not a lot of buzz about it. I mean, you know, we were talking still in the days of mainframes, Mm -hmm. Um, I've got a bite of memory. Uh, I was going to ask. a computer back in those Whoa. days. It's almost as big as a laptop uh, wow. nowadays, uh-huh. but, um, you know, they were big clunky things um, that, um, you know, colleges and universities owned and corporations, but that was about it. So okay. as students, we didn't really see them. Even when I got to college, um, when I by the time I got to college and started as a computer science major, which was my third year in college. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, um, computing started taking off, uh, and there was a buzz about it. But it, we were still talking about mainframes mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, and um, but uh, you know, every we had labs much like we do in Feathering Gill now. Mm-hmm. But um, they would be uh, they'd be just outside a mainframe, and you could look through the windows and see the Sigma Seven. Uh, in the room and um, but the night before an assignment was due that lab was packed Um, and it was a great deal of fun I don't think people know how social Mm. computer science could be certainly (laughs) back in the day sure. Um, you know I think uh, uh, the advent of laptops and desktops uh, you know this sort of reduce the amount of social interaction you had. You know, the night before an assignment was due, it used to be a party. (laughs) I mean, it was great fun, Uh uh, and it was great excitement.
0: I do remember a little bit of the FGH computer science uh, office hours lab. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that still, but uh, I can imagine having the physical restriction of, you know, computers here on campus, and people aren't uh, kind of rolling around with their laptops and their personal computers in their bags but that's really fascinating so now I'm wondering if you could maybe discuss so your research area historically has been around machine learning artificial intelligence one is a subset of the other maybe how you started to identify that as your research interest if that was uh, maybe facilitated by any mentors or uh, influencers at the time Um, whether it was like instructors or peers but friends of your father uh, and then leading that into uh, your undergraduate and graduate experience which was all at uh, UC Irvine.
1: Right. Um, it, wasn't, yeah, it wasn't all at UC Irvine. I went for okay. um, one year at UC Santa Cruz. <clears throat> I went f- for two years to the U.S. Naval Academy and then I got out Okay. and um, my father didn't really have much to do with me getting into computer science. He inter- you know, introduced me to it but um, if anything, I think part of me avoided computer science because I really? was rebelling, uh, perhaps, in those days. Um, not actively, but, um, and actually, as I got to be an adult, um, we got along really famously. But um, I was a psychology major at UC Santa Cruz, having been to the far left. I um, sort of went then to the far right. US Naval Academy as a political science major and I decided neither of the extremes were what I wanted and I thought I'd go middle of the road so I got out Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as I was getting processed out of the Naval Academy I um, went to the bookstore the Naval Academy bookstore and got um, uh, Isaac Asimov novels oh wow I hadn't read Isaac Asimov before but um, Mm -hmm seemed like a good thing to do because it took me about a week to get processed out okay and um i thought oh man and i had been accepted to um, Humboldt state university in um uh, biology with an intent to go into forestry but as i was reading these robot novels i thought oh my gosh this is what i want to do mm-hmm. and um I knew I I had a friend at uh, UC Irvine who lived about uh, 10 yards from the beach uh, in Newport Beach. Oh, wow. I applied, I got in, and I went. That's amazing. I was a computer science major. And, you know, with interest in AI. Mm -hmm. A lot of misconceptions, for sure, but um, nonetheless, it sort of took at that point.
0: So I wonder, it sounds like it might have been an eventuality... That you would have discovered if not in the bookstore through Asimov's novels uh, maybe some other way but it's still kind of uh, well I don't know how to think about it I don't know if it's like jarring or uh just intriguing at the very least the prescience with which some of those sci-fi authors uh, thinking of like Heinlein Asimov who actually I haven't read myself but the way that they kind of craft their stories and the way that you know, the essence and the content of those stories portends what seems to be increasingly likely. Mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty fascinating and... uh...
1: Yeah, although it took many decades. I mean, um, you know, I think when AI was uh, founded back in the late 50s, you know, you had a bunch of really smart, but somewhat arrogant people Mm. sort of think in 10 years, we'll be the chess champions. An AI would be the chess champion. And so there was... And it was much more than a a single decade uh, for that to take. But, um, yeah, I think there were a lot of uh, misconceptions, but I think there was... I think I never doubted the eventuality of where we are now. I just didn't think it would happen in my lifetime.
0: Wow. That's pretty special. So the... I guess maybe... If you care to elaborate on some of the misconceptions are they mostly kind of just like orders of magnitude on the expected timeline or are they really uh, more specific with respect to the capabilities and then uh i guess arrogance is you know for better or worse a hallmark of uh, a lot of maybe academic fields it could be argued but uh are there any early kind of anecdotes that you remember uh, and maybe playing that into so you read the asimov books what was kind of your first step, or what was your initial trajectory from there? Did you seek someone out at UC Irvine that was working on this? Did you find more books that were less sci-fi, more actual artificial intelligence uh, work at the time, or how did you?
1: So the that? way I I went about it is I just started doing what computer science majors do. I I had an introductory course I think at the Naval Academy, and so. When I got to Irvine, I skipped that and I started with data structures, um, and um, and then um, uh, you know computer organizations, sort of the classic start. But um, you know I remember taking data structures the same semester in that first year that I was taking um, cognition and memory in psychology, wow. which I took. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took uh, cognition and memory from uh, Taro Indo. Uh, and I took data structures from Tim Standish. And I can remember walking around the campus and thinking, uh, I had this sort of wow moment where I thought I can, I can simulate these things that I'm learning about in uh, memory and cognition in mm-hmm. psychology with um, data structures that I'm learning in um, that course. And it was quite an epiphany. I remember exactly where I was on campus when I had that epiphany. I think I was wrong on precisely you know, what I was thinking, but the fact that you know, I, I was thinking in terms of how to uh, use computing to simulate human thought and human-like thought mm-hmm. um, uh, was something of an epiphany. It, it sort of marked my first real serious, uh, I think, intro to AI. Um, and it wasn't from an AI class per se, but I do remember going and talking to uh, one of the AI faculty there, uh, Jim Meehan. Uh, Jim Meehan was, um, he had been, he was a relatively new faculty member. This was an undergraduate, um, or, no, I, I took AI, I talked, had this talk with him later after I became a graduate student there, <laughs> but um, I took Intro to AI and, and uh, intern, and you know, and I I really enjoyed it, um, and um, Love Program and Lisp, which... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I made mean, a really cool language. It's still my favorite language.
0: Is it? Yeah. The, the, uh, well, I guess I am glad that you brought that up, because I try to avoid what I think to be a little, like, superficial or hackneyed questions, like, you know, what's your favorite data structure? What's your favorite language? So, glad yeah. that that kind of came up organically, but, yeah, it's... Uh, I took so programming languages my junior year, and we did racket, which was a yeah. subset of Lisp, and still really uh, mostly confused, but also impressed. Given my confusion with uh-huh. functional languages right. and uh, what they can achieve with their kind of like expressiveness, conciseness, and uh, I guess interpretability, uh, sure, state cleanliness.
1: Yeah, really. You know, the first language that I took at Irvine was Simula which was a, um, a predecessor to Algol and was also a predecessor and perhaps the very first object-oriented language, mm-hmm. although it didn't have some of the uh, niceties of um, object-oriented languages to come. But um, that was the first language. And I really love programming and simula too, come to think of it. Uh-huh. But um, Lisp was um, you know an additional you know, favorite.
0: Sure. So broadly, theres uh, I don't claim to have a very thorough uh, background on the true kind of beginnings of artificial intelligence. I know that there was, uh, I believe it was the work of Rosenblatt, where there was very much a biological uh, aspect with respect to kind of like neuron structure and um, trying to, again, map these analogous kind of structures and uh, mechanisms to... Uh, biology, but is there maybe like an overarching kind of theme? The, the AI course you mentioned, was it kind of like uh, casting these problems as tree search? Or I was looking through some of your, your papers, there's the notion of like clustering uh, or hill climbing algorithms over these tree-like structures. What is there anything that stuck out to you in that initial material or anything that you kind of remember uh, vividly that you uh, continued to work on or obviously in your work? Uh, those types of things came up
1: yeah I mean AI in the um, early days was I think you know very much inspired by human intelligence and an ambition to create generally uh, intelligent agents Um, uh, as opposed to what came later which was a very tool-based approach now that tool-based approach, when it came later, it came uh, in the uh, you know, 80s and 90s. We're not talking about very recently, but mm-hmm. um, things like expert systems. So in the, you know, the 50s and um, uh, 60s, I guess there was a mix. There were people who were doing research in kind of very tool-based approaches like building uh, programs that could um, do integral calculus or answer analogy tests, things like that. But there were also uh, research on uh, attempts to build general problem solvers. Um, And um, so you really had these, I think these two ambitions, one to build very useful tools, um, uh, which grew into expert systems, which then grew into machine learning as we I think know it today. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, An attempt to build generally intelligent agents, which really is what people worry about now today, um, as well as um, in some cases look forward to. Um, And um, so I think, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you saw both of these kinds of ambitions uh, growing. Um, Machine learning started as a field in. Uh, probably we're talking um, you know the 70s Um, you know pretty early there were um, uh, people like uh, Patrick Winston who were building some of the initial concept learning systems Um, Rob Kling was building uh, analogical reasoning systems Jim Meehan the uh, AI professor at uh, Vanderbilt I talked to was building storytelling systems Mm. um, systems that could um, uh, compose and uh, compose stories very simple ones and so there was this activity that included some machine learning work but it included a lot of other things like planning uh, building robots that uh, could path plan things like that and um, um, you know, machine learning kind of started to really pick up in the um, in the uh, 1970s. The latter part of the 1970s, machine learning conferences and workshops were founded. Mm-hmm. Um, the machine learning journal came around in the 80s, 1980s, um, and it really became a recognizable field. Um, but it in not much of the work initially. The machine learning work was split, I should say, yeah, to be fair, the machine learning work was split between people who were working on artificial neural networks kinds of approaches um, uh, at Irvine, including Irvine. Steve Hampson was somebody who was there at the time, and uh, he was investigating um, uh, neural networks that did not require a whole lot of training data. Oh, they would learn, in, in fact, he he used the term in the 19, um, this would have been the early 1980s, one-shot learning. Mm. Uh, and we hear about one-shot learning now as though it's a new thing, but um, it's actually really old. And um, But there was also people who are working on more of what we would call, or what were called symbolic approaches, things like learning decision trees or learning decision rules. Mm-hmm. And um, these two uh, paradigms were uh, growing in parallel and um, uh, have continued to grow in parallel. So, um, you know, deep learning, which sort of falls in the artificial neural network tradition is arguably dominant right now, mm-hmm. but uh, you still have, you um, uh, Learning of decision trees published in the literature. Not single decision trees, but forests of decision trees. So you'll hear about random forests and things like that, which continue to be popular learning paradigms. So these things still coexist, are still growing, and, um, um, you know, have, I think, deep learning in particular has taken off in part because of new algorithms and architectures but in part just Mm because of the ability to collect so much data and the speed of computers both those things.
0: It is uh, extremely fascinating and maybe even a little concerning which we'll I guess talk a little more about that but definitely the compositionality that you reference where you know there's some search through architectural space and there's this area or this point in that architectural design space appears useful. But then there's another layer on top of that, which is orchestrating the connections between potentially many other units of of that you know useful kind of architecture. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've, you mentioned forest of decision trees all the way up to like the transformer architecture, attention mechanisms, uh, all very fascinating. Okay. I'm wondering if we could take a step back and discuss uh, intelligence the definition of intelligence uh, one that i was just thinking of but don't really have any justification for it. it is something like the ability to productively transition between action and perception uh, then there's obviously the distinction between intelligence <clears throat> excuse me and consciousness uh, you know one might argue that Consciousness emerges from intelligence and maybe some other environmental stimuli. But I'm wondering if you could maybe share, like, how you think about intelligence. Uh, Does it obviously, um, in one aspect, doesn't seem to strictly require biological um, life? Uh, But if you could just comment on those two themes, which we'll expand
2: on.
1: Yeah. You know, what is intelligence? What is consciousness? I think. I think both of these are many-dimensional spaces, um, uh, and so is creativity, which is yet another thing that I, I've sort of been getting into more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the important characteristics of intelligence, though, again, and as part of a spectrum, is the extent to which an agent explores alternatives. That for me is definitional of intelligence, at least so far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, is an agent, uh, whether it is uh, a human who's trying to solve a problem or prove a theorem and looking at different um, viable proof strategies, or a rabbit who is um, fleeing a predator and has to make judgments about where to go. And, you know, the, the look ahead required in in exploring the alternatives, is going to change. The rabbit doesn't have much chance or ability to look ahead. Perhaps uh, the human does um, in a uh, reflective uh, situation. Um, but you know, um, in um, if I was uh, confronted with um, uh, flight or um, uh, flea, I would probably do the same thing as the uh, rabbit. I would. I would I would still explore alternatives, but mm-hmm. it would be, uh, you know, very kind of uh, the response time would be very, very quick. There not be a lot of, may not be a lot of reflection on what the longer term consequences would be. Mm-hmm. But um, I think for me that defines intelligence, and the many dimensional space is important because even if simply looking at it like that there are other characteristics of evaluating the intel of the options. You know, what is the evaluation function you're using? What are you placing importance on? But also how far you look ahead. That's gotta be part of that multidimensional space as well. So the number of options, the depth that you're looking ahead, um, any metrics you're applying to evaluate the options either immediately or uh, into the uh, future um the uncertainties uh whether you're taking into account consciously or unconsciously uncertainties associated with the outcomes Mm -hmm. of the actions Uh, but at the heart of it you know i tell my ai students um if you're not evaluating alternatives it's not it doesn't count as a kind of intelligence that i really think uh is uh the most interesting um Could be it could be a kind of intelligence, but um, uh, rather than saying uh, something is not intelligent, rather than saying an amoeba is not intelligent, um, I would say it's uh, low. It's at a particular point uh, that is uh, near the low extremes in this Mm. multi-dimensional space. I see.
0: Yeah, the the, uh, that's actually really funny. I was just kind of like toying with asking about the intelligence level of an amoeba because there is a degree of uh, the kind of need to uh, maintain vitality if it's like the amoeba is going to take its form one way or another or like split or merge because of, you know, its total cell count is threatened or whatever the situation might be. But that's, uh, so there's actually, and it's interesting too that you mentioned kind of the... Intelligence, like index, with certain organisms, like the degree to which they explore uh, or they entertain optionality, given you know certain um, requirements or restrictions, constraints on their surroundings. There's a a book that I, I wanted to bring up, but I think this is a, a fitting place. Maybe it could also help transition into AI and the environment. But it's called uh, it's called Other Minds by Peter Godfrey-Smith. Mm-hmm. It he's a, a philosopher at NYU. And he basically wrote this book about how octopus, cuttlefish, and, you know similar marine life seem to basically have dolphins included in there as well. They have these social constructs, and they have, um, you know, kind of by virtue of their um, biological endowments. so like the, the tentacles with really dense like neuron, uh counts and and the ability to camouflage, manipulate objects, hide in coconut shells mm-hmm. or um blend in look like a tumbling piece of seaweed mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Do you uh or I guess so I guess the question is how does nature kind of complement the innovation that humans have uh in, inspire um complement um augment the innovation that humans have kind of come up with, like in, in a way there's, you know, trees, maybe it's like a a backwards mapping, like, uh, you know, a tree in a forest didn't necessarily inspire the structure of a decision tree, but there's mm-hmm. uh, definitely maybe some aspects of, of nature and yeah. maybe more broadly, like just complexity, like examples of complexity that have motivated uh, some developments in AI. So. I guess organisms or processes or like biological motifs that uh, have helped, or that you observe mm-hmm. or think are interesting.
1: Um, well, I certainly think you know the primates who exist, uh, who are tree dwelling. You know that may be uh, that may be to some extent the, um, you know, the the early basis in evolution of this idea of exploring alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know because you are confronted, the the monkey is confronted with a kind of discrete options. Do so I take this branch or that branch, for example? Um, and you know, who knows, evolutionarily, maybe that is sort of this basis for how we think. I don't know, uh, but it would be interesting to explore, and it is something I've thought about to some extent. I think. If octopuses, from what I know, lived longer than their ridiculously short lifespan, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, agreed. <laughs> they live what a year, something like that.
0: Pretty. It's it's a lot lower than you'd think, given the uh, yeah acuity they seem to exhibit.
1: I, they've got all the, um, you know, sort of all the attributes that you would need for success. They are. Um, I think, you know, marine life, since you raise it generally, um, exists within a, you know, a very, I guess we all exist uh, theoretically within a continuous space. Um, But humans have somehow uh, evolved and developed this ability to change their environment. So, um, I no longer have to deal with where to go in an open field. Um, you know, these hallways radically constrain where I can go. Our highway system, our road network, radically constrains where I can go. Mm-hmm. It sort of simplifies um, this um, uh, the task of uh, choosing amongst options mm-hmm. and limits the number of options that I have to really select between to a countable number. Um, Now, you know there's still some continuous aspects to the environment. How much do I break and where in the lane am I gonna actually go in center, right towards the right lane or the left lane? Um, But for the most part, road networks really constrain what I can do. And we design our space so it does constrain what we can do and it makes our choices easier. Um, I, I'm i fairly sure that octopuses in some ways manipulate their environment they might cover themselves up with shells or rocks or crabs to protect themselves from predators but if you only live a year there's only so much you can do
0: probably not setting up a living room with uh, discarded shells as your furniture for a long period of time
1: <clears throat> right, they may but um, uh, it's... Um, It's they're really interesting, but um, I was impressed by their intelligence. Uh, It is.
0: It's really. So yeah, seeing that book and then there's a number of kind of documentaries around octopus behavior and yeah the unfortunately small lifespan. But yeah, I I agree with you that if if they lived a bit longer, we would be in trouble. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's also interesting too. Like the ocean seems to have a lot of pretty fascinating technology like biological technology like from bioluminescence to the regenerative ability of like zebrafish and I mm-hmm. think a number of yet to be discovered um, tidbits that could greatly benefit whether it's human health or maybe it's some kind of structural or organizational principle uh, mm-hmm. fascinating but yeah. uh, so on the topic of AI and the environment I'm wondering you mentioned that you uh, were pondering doing work in forestry, if you could maybe comment on that. And then uh, I also, from my perspective, kind of see this dichotomy with AI and the environment. On the one hand, you have AI for, you know, mitigating or better understanding issues that face the environment. So whether that's like climate change or resource allocation to minimize emissions or uh, these types of things, using AI to crunch through massive spaces like that. Mm -hmm. And then on the, the other hand, you have the uh, development of AI itself, so the technological innovation uh, also seems to kind of tax or um, so for example, like GPU electricity requirements, and maybe this is just a temporary kind of like energy phase shift, if we go nuclear, then we get a lot more bang for our buck in terms of like unit of energy. But could you talk about how AI can, uh, the substrate or the technology that enables it can potentially uh, threaten or not threaten but uh, do not good to the environment while at the same time we're able to maybe identify an optimal way to uh, put boundaries around an endangered species or prevent this amount of uh, emission from affecting a city or, or that that kind of thing does that make sense?
1: yeah sure you know there's um, I got in, interested in this uh, I don't know computing in the environment back in like I guess it was 2006, when um, An Inconvenient Truth came out and uh, I knew something of climate change at the time, but um, I got interested in AI and the environment, AI and climate change, AI and the environment in particular about that time. And um, uh, I got more involved in it. I went to the National Science Foundation and served there for three years. And, did a lot of work there as an administrator on AI and the environment, and um, participated in some international conferences and um, designing programs that um, you know that uh, uh, supported work in computing in uh, the environment. Mm-hmm. But the kinds of projects that I was introduced to there um, were. Things like um, AI applications um, for, um, you know, wildlife preservation, uh, wildlife uh, reserve and corridor design, you know, kind of basic, um, uh, or I, I should say not basic, but um, kind of ways of optimizing. Say you're, uh, you want to um, uh, design a corridor that links to. Uh, areas that are currently protected so that endangered species in those two areas can go back and forth and um, better, uh, better um, uh, create you know, a larger base for um, uh, DNA. And um, uh, that kind of optimization work is sort of kind of classic AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other fields would, would claim it too. Um, But AI certainly claims optimization, much of that. Um, You know, and that same kind of, those same kinds of approaches, machine learning, which many would say is a form of optimization. um, uh, These are used in many different fields, things like uh, materials design and uh, intelligent design for uh, energy efficiency. you know there there are other areas that um, uh, are uh, kind of game theoretic areas for um, for example designing um, uh, designing um, uh, schedules for park rangers to go and look for um, illegal logging um, uh, and they schedule it or poaching. Of other kinds um, uh, and to set up the scheduling so as to optimize your chances of you know catching people who are uh, violating the laws, but also um, uh, encouraging them not to violate the law to begin with because they can't really predict when the park rangers are going to come through uh, so, a lot of work in wildlife design and wildlife protection, uh, energy efficiency, uh, intelligent um, building design, intelligent city design. Um, you know, these kinds of things I think are going on. Some of them at Vanderbilt. Um, I think, um, um, you know, um, some of the work in smart cities is certainly AI motivated, and environmentally motivated. Um But at the same time, um, as you point out, computing generally has an effect on the environment. Um, so it's not simply AI, but um, you know, as we make our laptops more energy efficient, we tend to um, uh, use more laptops um, uh, as um, mobile, devices become more energy efficient. Worldwide, we use more mobile uh, devices. And so the collective footprint, while the per unit energy consumption goes down, the worldwide energy consumption within a sector goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's known as the rebound effect. And it's been known for a long time. Um, I think it was uh, first recognized and put down on paper by, in the 19th century uh, by an English uh, author, Jevons, I think is the way you pronounce his name, who was concerned about um, increased coal efficiency. Hmm. Um, and coal was a, a messy product and he reasoned that um, the more energy efficient it is to burn, the more people will burn it. And um, um. so, you know, this has been around for a long time. It's been long recognized as a problem and it's, Certainly clearly a problem now. Um, computing does have the potential of offsetting uh, energy footprints in other sectors. The fact that we can um, communicate in meetings on Zoom rather than having to fly across country <laughs> sure. is something that uh, I've recognized for a while and um, uh, did at NSF, National Science Foundation, when I was there. But I think uh, you know, the pandemic has sort of driven that home. Mm-hmm. Whether we will stay with that, I'm not sure. But um, so you you can offset with computing um, energy footprints in some sectors, but um, uh, you know the the environmental costs of you know even machine learning. Um, I think um, and servers, server farms. Um, you know this is all energy intensive. And so, yeah, it does have an effect. I don't think there's an easy way to reconcile it. It's just pros and cons. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I think we really need to do what we can as individuals, but also, um, also as institutions. I mean, it is kind of amazing to me still how people are concerned with the environment and still will hop on a plane and without any regard for, um, for the environmental cost. Now, unless the plane doesn't fly, you could argue that um, your contribution, your little bit of weight on that airplane has a minuscule contribution to the um, carbon uh, footprint of that plane ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and so until and unless flights get canceled, there's really no savings to speak of. But um, I don't see any real work in, you know, how do we design a system so that we get, um, uh, you know, not little minuscule changes because individuals aren't flying, but how do we design a system in which, you know, entire routes are canceled? Mm. Um, Because unless, you know, Unless that happens, you're not going to be saving too much in terms of uh, flights.
0: Sure. Yeah, the rebound effect definitely pertinent there. I do also wonder how energy innovation could be, you know, uh, facilitated or maybe even accelerated by AI with uh, what you mentioned now. There's typically like fossil fuel based jet fuel for commercial airliners wondering the horizon. uh over which we could, you know, find alternative forms of propulsion. I know, mm-hmm. I think there's some interesting work at. A, it, it sounds very much sci-fi to me now, still, but yeah. uh, at least promising preliminary results around ionic propulsion, mm. um, as well as hydrogen-based fuels. There's also, I think, uh, and I don't know the implications of this, but like discarded nuclear cores or like, you know, some type of radioactive material that's. Uh, Safe to some degree, uh, has also been maybe floated as viable for a relatively cleaner form of energy, but mm-hmm. definitely, definitely some complicated issues that basically make like this tug of war between resources, uh, you know, allocating more to circulating more mobile devices at basically incurring that uh, energy cost at mm-hmm. scale. Um, yeah. I wanted to shift now to consciousness, the origin of consciousness. Uh, I was talking with one of your grad students and came across the book, uh, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by yeah. Julian Jaynes. Admittedly I haven't read it yet, but
1: I haven't read it a long time either, but
0: I was jumping around some chapters and, you know, kind of reading some summaries around it, and it seems that the core argument or position made is that uh, consciousness came from uh, basically the brain's like emergent language capacity as well as um, kind of like the evolution of culture between uh, human interaction. So I'm wondering what Mm -hmm. your uh, I guess how do you view that in light of um, kind of some of the new innovations Mm -hmm. with AI, uh, things like large language models which kind of uh, seem to basically take in the textual representation of the human experience, albeit not, not a complete or perfect to any degree, but um, you know, some of these capabilities like in chat GPT, GPT-4, um, pretty impressive ability to process information or process an input and basically <laughs> uh, going to the creativity aspect, uh, produce something like poetry or produce Uh, images or or songs so um i guess is there some uh interesting i guess consciousness related themes that you take from that book and then how might those change or um how are those if possible projected onto something like a large language model as we know them now yeah
1: i mean it's i read that uh book um the origin of consciousness: The breakdown of bicameral mind. Back in when I was a undergraduate, and wow. um, That's I'm pretty heavy sure reading. my father had given me a copy, and um, my father had gotten really into it, and he uh, he actually was in communication with Julian Jaynes oh, wow. about it, and um, uh, I had not really thought of it until um, a reference to the bicameral mind came up in um, I think, season one of Westworld.
0: Ah. You
1: know that series on HBO?
0: Yes, I haven't. I've seen a few episodes. It, it was pretty uh, pretty, pretty dark, I think. I, I was a little yeah. unsettled, uh, but I, I probably will go, go back to it eventually.
1: Right, and um, it was just sort of an offhanded reference. Um, you know, it was probably just two seconds, and you probably would have missed it had you not actually been interested in this. But... Um, you know, I started thinking about it a bit then, and uh, when I saw your questions, uh, I checked them this morning. And I started thinking about it, uh, given that we might talk about it. But um, you know, I think consciousness is certainly it's part of our, you know, met- metacognitive abilities. It's about, you know, I think introspecting on our own thinking, and. Um, I would say consciousness is part of a multidimensional space, too. That's how I get out of defining what it is. Sure. Um, but where it is, I'm even less sure uh, about the uh, that space than I am the intelligence space. But um, I do think it's about introspection. I do think that I'm most conscious about certain things, particularly when I'm exploring alternatives. I'm very conscious. So I think there's... Um, There's certainly a link between what I would think of as intelligence and what I would think of as consciousness or just recognition that very often uh, I am uh, measuring and evaluating things consciously and they tend to be options. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm perhaps less conscious when I'm just sort of taking a straight line to get from A to B. Uh, So I do think these these things are related. And what I can recall of uh, that book was this very novel idea uh, that did come to mind when I, this uh, reference in Westworld came up uh, of one hemisphere of the brain essentially talking to the other. Mm. And, um, uh, and uh, in the uh, mind of the person who lived during the Iliad, Um, Janes would assert that this kind of hallucination came from this sort of uh, hemisphere to hemisphere communication. Um, And potentially one hemisphere was sort of uh, the executive and the other was doing the grunt work. Um, But I think that's intriguing. And the thing that came to mind this morning um, was, you know, when I use ChatGPT and I've been talking to it regularly, <laughs> I, I, to, I told my class I talk to it daily, Nice. Uh, which is not quite right, but almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I got a couple of, you know, uh, scrunched-up faces like, "Are you crazy?" Um, and I'm surprised by that um, because um, who else is going to talk to me about formal language theory other than ChatGPT? Sure. I mean. Uh, and we've gotten into some good conversations about that but um, ChatGPT is not really capable or it's very limited in what I would call goal setting setting its own goals having a sense of direction Um, it is reacting it's depending on the human to do that the human is prompting it and It strikes me that in this situation of uh, uh, what is called co-creativity, where a human and an AI are working together, each is doing what they do best. I, as the human, am setting goals. I want answers to this question, this question, this question. Mm -hmm. I want you to explain it to me this way, this way, and this way. I, or the human in this interaction is uh, behaving as one hemisphere in the bicameral mind and ChatGBT or another AI tool is behaving as the other. and I think there's potentially a, a productive analog or at least a really interesting one to think about that because um, it is kind of metacognitive and if you were to think of me as an AI, I would be a layer on top of ChatGBT that would be interacting with it. Mm-hmm. And I think people are going crazy with prompt engineering as the next skill you have to have. Yeah, for about five years. And then an AI is going to do prompt engineering. Mm. And um, um, so uh, I never know what's you know what's going to come next. But this idea of adding a layer on top of ChatGBT and systems like it, uh, it comes up in terms of um, uh, wanting the AI to be able to explain to you what its reasoning is. Mm-hmm. That is going to come in the form of another layer above potentially Chat, any kind of generative AI. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a layer on top of it that's going to say, okay, I'm going to take what you are telling me or I am going to take your behavior and I'm going to try and translate it into a a more comprehensible form that a doctor would appreciate. Um, or um, fact checking, fact checking is one of those things that you could add uh, as a layer on top of a generative AI. Mm-hmm. Before you release any information that you get from the generative AI, run it through this additional fact checking, sanity check layer that actually checks against um, you know a semantic network of uh, knowledge uh, to make sure that what it uh, says is right. You know, prompts themselves. This is, again, if you were to think of me as an AI, as the generator of prompts, this would be another layer um, on top of a generative AI. Um, So I think if consciousness is going to arise in a machine, it will be because we are putting layers on top of it. I mean, James, as I recall, talks about Consciousness is kind of um, not something that you have to have for things like intelligence Mm -hmm. and other things like that, but it is about, you know, introspecting on thought. Um, And that is sort of this additional layer that I'm talking about. So as we had fact checkers and planners um, and um, uh, other kinds of AI tools, I think, there is the chance that um, an AI could become conscious in my lifetime now. I didn't think that, but I, I certainly don't think it's conscious now I think it's far from it, but it will become from layering things on top of it in this metacognitive way that I think um, will contribute you know to AIs becoming you know I hate to hesitate to say it. I don't want to be called a crackpot you know sentient but sure. Again, I didn't think we'd be here.
0: So I started to make like a sub list of, of things because I, I had a few thoughts that maybe can dovetail into this situation. But the the prompt structuring I think is interesting. Uh, so my advisor, Jewel, one of my advisors, Jules, is super excited about this. He's teaching a course I think in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a secret, but he's he's yeah. He's... Oh yeah,
1: no, we we. I'm part of a committee. Okay. That he uh, chairs on using ChatGPT. Okay. And I've read his paper. We've talked about his paper uh-huh. in um, the computational creativity class. They were quizzed on his paper. Um, he's coming to talk this Friday. Oh, excellent! About so yeah, it, it's uh, we've known about this for a while. But, oh,
0: yeah. maybe maybe we'll follow up offline because I'd love to. Uh... If I'm available, and if, if it's possible, I'd love to, to drop in or, or sit in on that. because Yeah, I think I'm fine some... with that.
1: Okay. I mean, it's... Um, and there probably are... I'm sure there's a couple empty seats. Yeah. Okay.
0: Excellent. The other thing, too, about what you mentioned with the layering is interesting. We had a, a graduate student kind of congregation where we, again, with the paper as like the centerpiece, talking about how you can kind of tailor or constrain the structure Uh, of the outputs and so that got me to thinking like right now we are just human natural language is our substrate and then chat gpt takes that in as the prompt Mm -hmm. i think what you were alluding to uh, makes it easy to imagine that you start to have this cascade of models where you know you maybe have um, you know some series of again architectures that are you know, maybe convolving over the text and then producing some completely unintelligible blob of information that goes into ChatGPT. And that provides a maybe orders of magnitude richer representation from its perspective of what the human is intending. And then that gets me to uh, what I am maybe like more recently have been concerned about. I am definitely curious for your thoughts where uh, there's maybe this notion of hyper communication where we've got these language models that have, you know, maybe Facebook and Google. Google has BARD, OpenAI has ChatGPT, and so these language models start to have, again, these massive kind of sets of information about kind of like humanity as a whole. And then my worry is basically whether there's some type of channel that's unintelligible to us where there's, you know, leakage of, you know, input contexts or human intentions that are exchanged across these. And I don't know, this is probably on the horizon of like, of, uh, you know, maybe it's a handful of years, maybe it's a couple decades, but, um, and I don't know the extent to which it would pose an existential threat to humans, but just the fact that, um, you know, animals communicate, but it's not in a way that, you know, could materially affect the existence <laughs> mm-hmm. of a large group of humans. So, uh that kind of uh, hive mind that seems to be increasingly feasible with um, the continued like proliferation of these language models that have you know different snapshots of or different perspectives on you know mm. cultural corpora of information is uh, I mean do you think that's a valid concern I guess or is it kind of just like if we can't observe it then we can't reason about it or. Uh, is there a way that we might be able to understand more about uh kind of some of the potential pitfalls or uh, dangers of uh something like that arrangement of you know chad g p t talking to an image model or talking yeah. to across you know space sure. and time of human activity
1: yeah no i think and I think that'll i think that's certainly possible again it's um, I think for that to be dangerous, AIs have to be endowed or evolve some ability to set their own goals. Mm. And they're just, you know, they're not really there. They still require us to set goals for them. And um, but at the same time, um, we have an historian on campus, uh, Michael Bess. Mm-hmm who has written a lot about um, AI, and he regards AI as one of the existential threats to humankind. Okay. And um, you know one of his uh, proposed, um, um, I don't want to say solutions, but uh, is um, we make sure an AI, a general AI is kept in a box essentially, and it can't communicate to the outside. Or it can only communicate to mm. some um, uh, human user. So that you know the, the computer that's housing the AI um, has access to uh, certain information. Um, uh, it may be uh, you know unidirectional somehow that's enforced. So yeah, I mean he regards that as a real threat. The fact that AIs might start communicating on their own. Um, and uh, it is is—it um, is you know, certainly, I think, currently science fiction, but um, you know, the future is a very big place and we have to imagine those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that they might be communicating. Um, I think, uh, so I noticed one of your questions uh, or one of your things you, um, might want to talk about is, um, I think you mentioned blog posts. I'd like to, you know, change that to podcasts. Okay. One of my favorite podcasts is, or used to be, Radiolab. Okay. Not sure if you're familiar with that.
0: I've heard a few. I'll yeah. uh, definitely check. out.
1: <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> there's one um, episode um, called, um, I think it's called Wild Talk. And there's a couple of very interesting stories in there, one about groundhogs and uh, one about um, primates. And um, the one about groundhogs talks about the fact that um, you know people who've, who've, who've you know, prairie dogs, not groundhogs, prairie dogs, have gone in and, and, exam- and looked at that, those um, large communities of, of prairie dogs <clears throat> um, have identified that the prairie dogs have a, a vocabulary. Oh wow! So they can they can uh, communicate with each other across the community with squeaks, and nice. you know a big man in a um, you know red outfit is going to get different squeaks than a small person in a green outfit. So they're communicating things like size and, and um, color. And um, another story, and I think in that same set of, they generally have three stories, uh, is about uh, primates somewhere that somebody went to study communication and um, learned that <coughs> um, uh, primates were actually communicating across they were learning each other's languages. And so primates in one species would communicate a leopard versus an eagle mm. in different ways. Um, and um, uh, primates in other species learn that, uh, that language. And um, um, the, um, the researcher talks in the very end about uh, walking through the forest and hearing these calls that, because he had been studying this for so long, could identify that the primates were reporting a leopard. Wow. And the calls were tracking with him. And he was also this primate uh, in the uh, forest that had learned the language. And he turned around and there was a leopard. Um, Wow. he wasn't attacked, but the leopard had been tracking him. Maybe it was a jaguar. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, And he, he knew it because he had learned the uh, various primate um, oh, wow. languages. And um, so those are kind of interesting stories. But the fact that animals can communicate, including across species, I don't know what interesting thing could come up from AIs communicating in that way, but... Mm-hmm you know maybe there's some potential that's not entirely negative
0: sure well i have a so there's two more kind of like to take this branch like two more thoughts there and then actually maybe one that's a little more um fantastical but uh I'm, i think still it's pretty pretty interesting the viability so the first one would be how you know computation continues to pervade um you know right now the substrate is silicon but That very well could change you know at some time horizon in the future there's a book called nova scene uh, by james lovelock Mm. which basically uh kind of espouses what's known as gaia theory which is basically that like the universe or more specifically the earth bears life but it's also kind of like this uh computational basically this vehicle for computation and that in the limit The things that exist biologically on earth will increasingly become kind of like computational entities so imagine like all of the ocean and the forest and the trees just becoming like this massive like computer chip basically instead of Mm -hmm. a rock in space we've got like a chunk of silicon for planet earth and uh when you talk about kind of communication between species, like the human species, or even just like wild species, I think it's really interesting uh, when you think about the ability to uh, basically break those boundaries of if we could um, expressively talk to, you know, whether it's like a prairie dog or primates in the jungle or ocean life, kind of what benefit would we get? Uh, And I guess the closest example to that manifesting would be in Neuralink, uh, you know, I don't really know the ethical implications of what they're doing but they had a demo where they had this primate kind of controlling Pong uh, with its brain hmm. and indeed there's actually I found out recently like a headset that you can buy that passively can track your brain signals and then you can train these little like well I guess they're uh, like toy machine learning models on the brain signals such that when you're wearing the headset And when you, you know, when you have a thought, the video that I was watching was uh, the person kind of showed a, you know, this animation of like time and then activation of these uh, specific sensors. And he was saying that when he started to think of biting a lemon, there was a spike in the activity. Hmm. So basically interpretability around thought patterns and even connecting that to an AI or, you know, connecting that to another uh, type of creature and basically the aggregation of experience and perspective and, um, kind of like into intelligence or intellectual artifacts that mm-hmm. would, that would come from that. And then, you know, plugging that into AI or using it to reason, um, I guess more granularly about what it can and can't do. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, so this is maybe more cynically on the track of the singularity where. There's this question of like software eating the world. Are we doomed to create Skynet? There's a sci-fi book. I think it's from the. Could be wrong, but I think it's from the '90s or '80s by Roger Williams called "The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect." Mm. Have you heard of that? No. the The premise of the story it's pretty short. I think it's like two hundred ish pages, but the premise is that a engineer, basically. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, it's like he's like a scientist and basically creates this computer, it has this moral engine, it has like all of these, you know, modules for reasoning. And so it comes to life, it's plugged in, and basically the first thing that it does is takes into account a model of um, I guess the standard model of physics is quantum field theory. And so there's like there's obviously this sci fi kind of wrapper around it, but It takes in the model of physics and then identifies the human error that's latent in that model of physics that says, oh, you're missing, uh, this is a bad assumption here, or this equation needs to be like modified just so. And so in the story, it's called the correlation effect. And so basically, this AI model that was produced by a human identifies a flaw in the human constructed model of physics, corrects it. And then basically leverages that correlation effect to manipulate Mm space-time. It, like, replicates itself in the universe in, like, these silicon banks. It basically creates a copy of Earth for every single human. And then, again, this is getting really far-fetched, but uh, it basically takes the... I don't know if it's, like, the novelty of existence or human experience away from humans. And then it uh, basically becomes, like, one of the lines that kind of summarizes it well was you know, anyone could have a great Gatsby party, anyone could have anything that they wanted at any time. And so then it kind of begs the question of like, what are we supposed to be doing? And mm-hmm. um, the the story kind of takes a trajectory of all of the fallout and consequences of that and how humanity has changed because of um, this super powerful AI. But definitely interesting. And uh, with the with each kind of GPT iteration, I wonder how close we are, you know, with if it's like five, six, or seven, how close we are to something, you know, productively saying, hey, this long standing theory is wrong, or string theory is missing this insight, or, you know, some little uh, last puzzle piece to really doing something that is immensely, uh, I don't know, omnipotent or yeah. <laughs> potent in that regard. <coughs>
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, monitoring the brain and putting sensors on the uh, human brain, um, you know, I think we need to put sensors on chat and artificial neural networks, too. And see, um, you know, right now there's a, you know, an hallucination effect mm-hmm. with chat GBT and other uh, systems like it. And... Um, Uh, What creativity might be present in these systems is probably due to this hallucination effect. Um, Now can we, you know, right now they just get things wrong. They make Mm up references. Yep. Um, And um, uh, can we identify um, where inferences are being made in, These uh, deep learning networks and harness those because I think true intelligence, the ability to move beyond what we know Mm -hmm. um, that might be provided by an AI, is going to come from, you know, uh, an ability to make, you know, kind of leaps, educated guesses. Mm -hmm. And what my current understanding of GPT is, it's not really capable of educated guesses in the sense that I'm thinking, mm-hmm. um, and um, although it is, it can express um, the idea that um, uh, what it's saying is a guess um, or um, a um, you know something that's not necessarily. Um, true of a circumstance that a human is asked about, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, it's I think it's taking that information from um, you know the the repository that it's learned from, sure. and um, uh, yeah, it's it's very difficult to um, assess where this could go, but um, yeah, I think in the future it's certainly the case that AIs are going to be able to expand or help expand what it is we currently know.
0: There's another, so the creativity, I want to circle back uh, to the creativity and uh, the course and kind of how you think about computational creativity. I wanted to linger on uh, I guess what is known, what you were just getting at, the interpretability of ChatGPT. It's kind of this, uh, I guess there's a number of researchers that maybe in a justified way are, again with the historian you mentioned, Uh, but other AI researchers as well that are really concerned with some of uh, the capabilities that have been shown. And then as kind of like a side note, there is a recent podcast with Sam Altman that came out. And anecdotally, he was saying he had a discussion with Ilya Sutskever about one kind of litmus test for, you know, quote unquote consciousness in chat GPT would be if you... You trained a model that was very carefully pruned with any references or uh, kind of like transitive dependencies on consciousness or the mention of it, the allusion to it. And then you like trained it on that set of data, again, with consciousness removed. And then you have ChatGPT and kind of prompted in a way that um, would ne- necessarily um, kind of invoke consciousness or something around the idea of consciousness what, you, what you've been talking about is like introspection with respect to optionality and uh, I, I do wonder if that's something uh, that will happen soon and the theme that I want to get at is uh, how do we do alignment correctly it seems like we're really far behind analogously like in cybersecurity, which is a little bit of what I study mm-hmm. it's almost seems like trying to basically climb up a waterfall with the amount of uh, attacks and the lack of defense that uh, seems to exist on a macro scale. And so basically the question is, in your career, how has the conception to implementation distance kind of evolved? And then what are the implications of that? So kind of can versus should, you know, can we create an AI that does X? Should we do it? what are the potential fallouts of that? And, you know, how should that be navigated?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, inspired by um, a talk that Jules gave, your advisor, mm-hmm. um, at one of the faculty meetings. Um, I started actually, I played around with ChatGPT in fictional work. and. Um, Uh, I started working, I started doing nonfiction with it. Started talking to it about the formal language theory Mm -hmm. and a little bit of coding. And the students in the class are now working on a coding project. And they're not just encouraged to use ChatGBT, they're required to. Nice. For the computational creativity class. And I'm probably gonna use it in the intro to AI class in fall as well. Um, But, um, you know, I think, so i'm getting a sense myself of how this tool will help me in this conception to implementation distance Mm um um, it can do a lot so um you can uh, decompose a uh, a design i can ask it to give me a set of modules that are important in the uh, construction of some large piece of software and it can lay out the modules. Um, I can tell it to comment or document uh, those modules as well. So it's demonstrated to me, it can do some high level architectural design on a piece of software, as well as writing functions. Um, And um, uh, So I have no doubt it will speed up my ability to create and implement ideas. Um, I also anticipate I can learn languages, new programming languages, much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if what you are asking is is the is the AI helping me to speed up the conception to implementation distance, shorten it, I would say probably yes, as long as I'm careful about checking for errors and and. And some kind of methodology develops for doing that in a systematic way, which could be another AI. Mm-hmm. You know that. <clears throat> um, I think um, you know. I think one of the potential downsides is that um, uh, people, even experienced programmers. Um, and software designers will become sloppier. Uh, and they won't, they, they will allow these tools, the intelligent tools to um, take the burden. So, um, or take an increasing amount of the burden of design and evaluation. And even though they think they are developing um, the same output, um, it won't be the same output. I mean, it's like talking about the efficiency of an algorithm versus the cost of an algorithm. Mm. I can tell you that here are two algorithms that do exactly the same thing, Mm -hmm. but one is faster than the other. I could say one is more efficient than the other. If they really do exactly the same outputs, um, but one is always... Uh, doing it more quickly um, always under every circumstance doing it more quickly I can say that that algorithm is more efficient but if one is simply taking shortcuts and in some cases not doing the same as some gold standard output you know that's not efficiency that's simply shortcuts mm-hmm. it's you're saving computational costs, but you haven't created a more efficient algorithm mm. necessarily, unless it's faster for you know some kind of substantive way. And so I, I worry that um, you know how this will change and what kinds of methodologies will evolve uh, with these AI tools um, will protect us from those kinds of situations that are kind of illusory that is they they appear to do the same thing but it's um we're not doing it with the same discipline
2: hmm.
0: yeah that's uh i think the interpretability question is one of the most important the not necessarily well i guess kind of the the way that uh you know, kind of peeking under the hood of ChatGPT, like understanding as you mentioned before, this like traversal of activations, you know mapping, there's like I guess a notion of like a semantic gap where uh, and they've even actually started to, to like discuss kind of lasering these like transformer these language model weights onto hardware such that you could basically have like a master copy of these again, burned onto hardware weights and then you could have Applications with dependency on those core weights, but then maintaining themselves like a context-specific, uh, you know, potentially a subset of those weights. Yeah. And so from there, it becomes really important to be like, oh, the, you know, the reasoning module and the creativity module are, you know, working in concert or mm-hmm. this module should not know anything about this, like kind of, again, analogous to like typical isolation boundaries right. for security. But yeah, those are all... Uh, Interesting and, and scary directions. Yeah. I'm wondering now if you can maybe just to close out the kind of the creativity discussion, how, uh, or I guess, what do you want the takeaway from your course to be? How did you kind of uh, realize that that's something that you wanted to teach, computational creativity? And then is there a definition? Is there like a quantitative representation that you subscribe to of of creativity there's obviously been you know things like mid-journey which i think you mentioned the class uses kind of winning art competitions and so you know now there's like this seeming capability of again an ai to have like this acute um, sensibility to like aesthetics or you know through human communication it has some type of you know nuanced lens into what makes something beautiful or Um, Visually pleasing.
1: Yeah, my goal was to survey, um, you know, a a number of different technologies, a wide range of technologies, and give students basically a um, some insight into the the range of activities in which creative, computationally creative systems or tools, I should say, are being used. Um, And uh, those correspond to the visual arts, they correspond to narrative, uh, both fictional and non-fictional. They correspond to programming. They correspond to music and dance. Um, In all these areas correspond to podcasts. Um, In all these areas, AIs are being used. Um, And my goal was to give a, a broad survey for students on those AI tools, not just the mid journeys and the chat GBTs, Mm -hmm. uh, but a wider range of tools. And so um, we've talked about, um, you know, we've talked about those. We've talked about art generation, we've talked visual art generation, narrative, um, but um, different kinds of storytelling. AI storytelling has been around for a a fairly long time, since the 70s, and it has nothing to do with deep learning. (laughs) Um, Deep learning is certainly going to add to uh, our discussion because ChatGPT is generating some stories that are kind of pseudo-interesting. But um, uh, dance, and I also want to distinguish, um, this is something that... I myself gained an appreciation for as I was teaching the class. Um, Midjourney, Dolly, ChatGBT, I think they have almost no ability to um, analyze after the fact and evaluate their responses. In some way, by my definition, um, when you ask uh, ChatGBT for a specific response to something or a mid-journey, and it gives you a response, it's probably doing some learning as a result. and and The the intelligence is in that learning. Mm -hmm. It's not in the generation, and so there's no reflection necessarily after the fact of the product that's been produced in these commercial products. Um, I say commercial and free for now, but we'll see. Mm. Um, And in contrast, research work that has been going on a long time, there is actually a field called computational creativity. Mm. Um, In those pieces of work, um, there is an attempt to reflect on the product that is produced after the fact. So like a real painter... There is a generative part of the AI, and it's generating the art, but then there is a introspective process, which is not sentience, it's not consciousness, but it is a post-generation evaluation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see that in the research work um, in computational creativity. Uh, The same with storytelling. There's There's a looking back, what kind of story have I produced? Is it generated dramatic tension, uh, et cetera, um, and um, so that's one thing I've I've come to appreciate a real difference between the stuff that's coming out commercially and the and the research that's going on mm-hmm. in this field. Um, and so my intent was to expose students to this wide range of um, computational creativity, both what they came in expecting to see which i'm sure was Midjourney and dolly and chat gbt mm-hmm. um but um uh, other kinds of areas other kinds of um, uh, other kinds of uh, technology other kinds of methodology um, and so uh, that's been pretty interesting and i'm learning a lot from it and it's pushing me too uh, so um, they had three projects. The first one involved no technology. Well, it did involve technology. It was to make a curation. Curate something that you are personally interested in and report on the AI tools that you use for it. Okay. Um, uh, but they didn't really have to use AI tools at all. It was all about introspecting into their own thinking mm-hmm. about how they created something. In this case a curation uh, and the responses were were pretty interesting the curations uh, in many cases were beautiful or insightful but um, uh, you know it, it, they were they were more than that there was some thought that went into them and there was general uh, you know generally i think uh, they liked doing something that they were not used to doing in a computer science course um uh, the second project was to develop uh, use AI tools in a team environment to uh, develop visual art for this building, this floor. And the third project, which they just started on, is using ChatGPT to generate code for nice. um, you know, some project. So CS3251 was a, a prereq. Okay. Um, and there were, again, I gave them the option of working in teams or not, if they wanted to. Most are working in teams of two, couple, three. Uh, number of students are working individually. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what I got. And I had some initial ideas about what they might do, but they're pretty free to um, work on other things. So,
0: Did you require any approval, or was there a constraint on the capabilities or functionalities of the code, or could it be like, a script to do X or a website that shows Y or?
1: The, um, it was very open-ended. And what I said was the use of chat GBT, which I regard as a computationally creative system is enough to satisfy the requirement that this be related to computational creativity. Because okay. most of computational creativity is co-creativity in any case, an AI and a human working together. Um, some I think are working. One idea I gave them was um, uh, to uh, start a company that created greeting cards where the an AI wrote the narrative and an AI gave you the images. Wow! Um, and um, uh, another another company idea was uh, Old Duffer Incorporated, where they um, uh, you know they generate uh, a code base. In uh, some archaic language like COBOL or Fortran, that is still being used. Wow! Um, and people my age are getting jobs, and they're pretty—they're well-paying consulting jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, I don't know that anyone's taken that, but um, but they could also, um, uh, you know, they could also um, uh, do work in other areas too. I'm trying to think of some of the projects. Yeah, it's pretty open-ended and if i see something that concerns me um uh but really the purpose of this last assignment is particularly for seniors to get experience in this new way of doing things mm-hmm. coding sure um because many of them are getting out having gone through training that is going to completely change
0: yeah it's it's um it is fascinating to see what can be done and, like, the speed-ups and even, like, I know GPT 3.5, like, the original chat GPT had some hiccups now and I am actually using uh, GPT 4 for code generation as well in some more uh, security-related not, like, you know, I'm not putting generated code into production but I was using it to uh, write a kernel module, yes, the other day for ARM architecture and, like, accessing performance counters and it's really create... you know, kind of wild to see how it can reflect, well, not reflect unless it's prompted, but, you know, compilation error from the module, you paste the compiler error, and it says, it always says, I apologize for my mistake, here's what you should do, and it it sometimes does that uh, to a fault when it apologizes when it's actually, um, shouldn't be apologizing, I guess. But, yeah, the other thing that is interesting is the, Kind of the reflection or the self-critique, which I might go try that prompt where you ask it to do something that may uh, kind of fall within uh, the ability to evaluate it quantitatively. You know, maybe not, it's not like a poem and you say, how good is the poem? But, um, you know, adherence to some criteria in the prompt and then do X through the prompt and then comment on why X was your solution or how good you think is as a solution yeah that's a a pretty fascinating idea it is uh yeah it's definitely i feel like each passing day and there's a number of uh academics that i follow on twitter in this space uh some interesting things uh come up on my feed with papers and projects and you know the jailbreaking and there's the whole i guess darker side of you know what can be done but uh certainly is probably not going anywhere uh Mm -hmm. anytime soon yeah so using it to to one's uh benefit i think is a good idea yeah so just to to wrap up i wonder if you can share uh i guess in the context of advice advice that you would give to young people who you know might be interested in computer science or a career in academia advice that you remember getting um, maybe things that you wish that you knew earlier in your career or uh, anything around kind of navigating an academic career um, mentorship how to find uh, things that you're interested in any any kind of words of wisdom around those pursuits
1: yeah it's hard to say the world's changing so quickly but um I think, um, uh, you know, for those interested in computer science who are going to pursue it, um, in my time as a teacher, um, I have noticed that um, there are some students at the undergraduate level uh, who get into computer science because they love computer science. Others get in because it's a guaranteed job. Mm-hmm. or so they think uh, it won't be a guaranteed job at the kind of places they might want to go but it's been a guaranteed job for a very long time uh, back in the 90s um, you know st- students would flunk data structures two two o one, multiple times come to my office crying um, and telling me that parents were you know, it was the pre-med mm. uh, of uh, disciplines in the '90s. Things collapsed, and we went through a kind of downturn in the perceived demand for computer scientists. But um, uh, you know, if some if a student comes and asks me for advice about whether they should stay in computer science, my first question is, Do you like it? If you don't like it, God do something else. Mm -hmm. English majors don't come to Vanderbilt to, for a guaranteed job. Mm -hmm. Presumably, I hope they come it because they, they like it. I came to computer science because I like it. Um, student asked me, uh, with the uh, firings in, or the downsizing of big tech companies Mm -hmm. recently, is it still worth it to be a computer scientist? And Yes, if, if you got in it for the right reason, because you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. If you got in it because it's a you know guaranteed job, I, whether there's firings or not, I think that's a uh, not a good reason to get in. Um, so that would be the first piece of advice. Who should not get in? Um, do something you love and do it well, and I think you will be all right. Um, but if you are gonna be in computer science, um, and you like it, I would uh, pair it with something else. And um, uh, you're in a discipline that, um, you know, comp- some companies don't even ask for your <coughs> your academic record. They don't care. You know, how well do you do on the tech interview? Um, and um, pair it with something else. And as early as you can be thinking what you might want to do. Um, uh, Pair computer science with a Chinese major, double major. Mm-hmm. My God, in the, in the world we live in, that is going to help you. Definitely. And you're entering a world in which you should be flexible um, and you should have a number of things to recommend you. And I think knowledge of um, Chinese is, culture and language is probably a good choice mm-hmm. if you're so inclined as an undergraduate. But there's other field. there's other Pairings like that that make a lot of sense. Uh, for the graduate level, I would say, um, um, you know, be productive. If you feel lost, and um, depending on what kind of shop you are, I I came through a system in which, you know, it was more or less. I wasn't thrown in a pool to see if I could swim, but mm-hmm. it was up to me to come up with a topic and. Um, i wasn't part of a, a big shop. I was part of a number of uh, a fair number of graduate students, and we were all supported but um we got to essentially choose our own topics, which I don't think is the norm i th- I think students get to choose their own topics, but it's often more circumscribed than it used to be mm-hmm. and um um so, you know, recommendations I give to my students, or students that operate under that condition, is find a paper you like, and if it describes an implemented system, re-implement the system mm-hmm. um, and um, re-evaluate it and become an expert in this little thing that you are most expert on. And, um, and it gives you a sense of accomplishment and it starts you thinking about research and all sorts of good things. So, I got lots of suggestions on the small, but most of my students are sort of—they're out there finding their own things. But um, and I think that's good. But it, it has some downsides too. Uh, might take you longer to graduate, and um, uh, and I I would say, you know, if you are part of a well-funded lab and you're getting to choose what you do, you know, treasure it. Because it's the great time of life, academic life, for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, But be open to what the various uh, areas of interest are.
0: That's and excellent. Well, Dr. Fisher, I really appreciate your time today. This was an amazing conversation. The time completely flew by, but I appreciate your making time in your schedule for me and uh, really look forward to hearing more about the creativity class and uh following your work. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Douglas Fisher. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to check out other episodes of the Grasp podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you've enjoyed other episodes, please subscribe and rate the show five stars if you feel so inclined. As always, thank you for your interest
2: and your curiosity.